Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments, so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before I introduce today's special guest. I'm happy to announce that I'm working on my next book. The title is Reclaim Your Digestive Health and Feel Normal Again, Fixing the Root Cause of Your GI Distress with Natural Treatments. Now this book should be ready later this year, so keep an eye out for it. Okay, that's it for our housekeeping, so let's get started. I'm so very excited about this week's show because my special guest is Dr. Peter Bregan. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Bregan is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist. He is called the conscience of psychiatry for his many decades of successful efforts to reform the mental health field. His work provides the foundation for modern criticism of psychiatric drugs and shock treatment, and leads the way in promoting more caring and effective therapies for patients. Dr. Bregan's uh, award-winning books include Toxic Psychiatry, Talking Back to Prozac, and his newest book is Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions. Dr. Bregan, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Oh, Carrie, I'm really glad to be with you. I think we're going to have a lot of fun and do a lot do a lot of educating oh that's exactly what i want to do because i will tell you dr bregan in my private practice at functional medicine ontario pretty much i would say four out of five new patients that come in have some kind of a diagnosis of anxiety or depression or panic panic attacks something like that and a lot of them have done some research on the internet and one of the good things about the internet is it's exposing the weaknesses within our healthcare profession and the areas that we need to really start addressing so a lot of them are seeing that well maybe medications are not the way to go and but they're not sure of how to get off their medications and the doctors are not really being that helpful so I'm so glad that you're with us today to help help our listeners out there who are going through these struggles. So can you tell us a little bit about the background when it comes to psychiatry and the medications and all that kind of stuff? Well, as you were describing people coming in with diagnoses and on drugs, it's really hard, I think, for people to grasp that this whole wave of essentially... uh, toxic agents uh, reaching such a glamorous and widespread use is the creation of billion-dollar pharmaceutical companies working with my colleagues in psychiatry, I'm a psychiatrist, 
as their primary hench persons and then spreading it throughout medicine, all fundamentally driven by the profit motive of the pharmaceutical industry. That the whole structure of the diagnostic manual that's used was created by doctors literally on the take from the drug companies. That the scientific articles that out in the literature, many if not the majority of them written by drug company ghostwriters with bought doctors putting their names on them. And that this is just a massive, not even um, a conspiracy because it's not underground, a massive operation literally run by the drug companies. And when I say doctors, you know, who are, who, who, who are on the take doing the bidding of the drug companies, I mean big doctors like uh, Joseph Biederman, who is from Harvard my college alma mater, and I had a, a year at the, also at the residency program, Joseph Biederman, head of the pediatric psychopharmacology group at Harvard, and many others. Um, I, I blew the whistle on him years ago, and now he's been in, you know, before congressional committees and so on. So this is like, it's just hard to wrap one's mind about it, because here you are, you're the patient, You've heard about Xanax, your friends are taking it. You've heard about Paxil or Zoloft or Prozac or Lexapro. Your friends are taking it. One of maybe taking Seroquel to sleep with at night or whatever. And to step back and say, whoa, this is a construct without meaning. To go back and look at the research and 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 uh, let's say your little your, your little daughter or son has been has been recommended to go on uh, the uh, Adderall XR, and that sounds all pretty good and it's an interesting word name Adderall must be for ADD. And then maybe 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 you go and you you look in the label and you ask yourself now. I know my child's going to be on this for months, maybe years. Let me see how long the studies were. And what do you do if you get in and you look at the study, you find out it was three weeks long. Three lousy weeks long. And your pediatrician, never having read that, thought about it, maybe not even cared about it, is going to tell you your child has ADHD and you need it for the rest of your life. Or maybe Prozac. And then you have to get a hold of one of my books where I, well, I go into also the Adderall issue, but you know, one of my books where I go heavily into the Prozac because I was the medical expert, Carrie, you may not know this, for all the combined Prozac suits. I was the scientist for, appointed by the courts and the consortium of attorneys for all the Prozac suits. And what did I find out? I found out that the studies were planned for six weeks, no longer, because it made the patients too sick, agitated, anxious, insomnia, and so on, hostile, suicidal. But they couldn't even get the patients to stay in for six weeks, so the FDA let them cut down the studies to four weeks. And then the patients were still so overstimulated that the drug company illegally had to give their patients benzos and other sedatives. And then the FDA found out but the only studies that showed even the slightest statistical advantage for the drug over placebo 
were the ones where they were taking benzos. So then the FDA allowed the studies to to get uh, approved that way, never telling the public this was a combination uh, drug of the uh, Prozac and addictive benzos, and on and on, and on and on. So, wow, I just went a long time. <laughs> I'll <basically>, take a breath. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect that. It just came uh, out of character. Oh, that's great. No, it's fantastic because uh, you brought up a very important point that the majority of the research that's out there on these medications is too short when they're actually in real life being prescribed for years. And the the benefit over placebo is minor or none, right? It, can you explain just that part about how they compare a drug to a placebo in the research? Well, you do a, let's say you do a three-week trial of um, of Adderall, the drug a lot of kids are taking, which is simply amphetamines, just nothing but a batch of amphetamines. See, now during this trial, the child will come in once a week, be seen three times in three weeks. Then the trial's terminated. They have no idea what's happened to the child afterward on the drug. They don't want to know because it's not good. And during those three weeks, the drug's effect, which will last interestingly enough, only three or four weeks. That's what's going on. But the drug's effect is to crush the child's spontaneity. So if you give this drug to chimpanzees, they stop exploring, they stop socializing, they stop playing, they stop fighting, they stop being chimpanzees and they look like they're happy to sit stupidly in a cage. Well, the parent doesn't know and the teacher doesn't know that that what's happening is uh, we're making little good little caged animals by literally crushing the spontaneity of the children it's a relative degree for some kids literally they become zombie-like i have quotes from textbooks about that or they may just lose their sparkle but what they're really going to lose is their sociability so they don't want to poke the girl in the, the next desk or throw a spitball or run around because they've been confined all day and been sitting all day. In other words, literally, their brains are being subdued and, oddly enough, made OCD. So they will sit and do compulsive things like copy off the board. But they don't learn. They don't grow. Their growth physically is stunted. And myriad problems from tics to psychosis develop. And at its best, during those four weeks, all you've done is subdue your kid and take the twinkle out of his eye. Then, of course, the child gets insomnia from the stimulant, so he's given a sedative. Now he begins to look really depressed because amphetamines are actually quite depressing to children, and so are sedatives. So now you put him on an antidepressant, then he gets a high, manicky, and aggressive, and you call the poor seven-year-old bipolar, and you do what you've always wanted to do, Joseph Biederman, you nasty man at Harvard. You've gotten one more kid on Risperdal, for which you've been paid hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, under the table by Johnson & Johnson, <laughs> his subsidiary Janssen. It's awful. So, awful. It's, a, it's awful. Now, can by you, the way, go ahead. Yes, I'm, maybe it's looking at your picture or your voice, which is very nice, <laughs> but I'm rarely this rhapsodic on the air. Go ahead. <laughs> 
Well, maybe it's because I've just finished a new book today. Just finished it, I, but I but I can't talk about it. Whatever just it is, today. this is a great interview so far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about the antidepressant class of drugs? Because so many adults, well, and kids too, are in antidepressants and the actual research, you know, the efficacy, do they do they work any better than placebo? And what are the long-term effects on people's brains that the doctors are not telling the patients about? Um, <clears throat> well, to get approved by the FDA, the drug company can do as many studies as they want and then pick two of them. That doesn't make scientific sense. And if you can't do many studies and find two that your bought doctors can make look effective, I mean, you know, who are you if you can't accomplish that? Well, in fact, with regard to Prozac, take two of the drugs, Prozac, uh, they really couldn't show it was effective. Um, so they had to accept the studies where the patients were drugged, which was probably the benzos, which is probably the main effect they were getting, and they proved it. With Zoloft, which was disapproved in a number of European countries because it didn't work, even with all the turning and twisting and manipulating by the drug companies. With Zoloft, the FDA approved it, but lamented in a memo that I have, it lamented that that it was so marginally effective it shouldn't have been approved, and it hadn't been approved in Europe, and what was going on that the FDA standards were now l looser than Europe's. I mean, this is an in-house memo at the FDA. So the drugs, they don't have to do anything to get approved. I mean, they just have to fit into a little statistical, uh, he heavily manipulated uh, result. Now, long term, these drugs are producing a huge amount of depression. And it's written all over the label. It's called worsening of the clinical condition. They're producing episodes of mania in which people commit murder and, and steal and do other terrible things. They're producing uh, long-term, and this is a, a really routine outcome, from, unfortunately for your average listener on the drug, a loss of interest in life, in sex, but also in love, in play, in occupation, and they do it without realizing it. You need to ask your husband or your wife or maybe your dog whether you've been given as much attention as you used to. Because as people describe sadly, well, my spouse doesn't even look glad to see the dog anymore. This apathy that sets in, the majority of people, most noticeable in men, because you can see sexual dysfunction a bit more graphically in men, the vast majority develop serious sexual dysfunction over the years, but it's also a love dysfunction. It's it's not just physiologic in in the sense of um, you know harm to the autonomic nervous system. It's it's also a frontal lobe suppression. It's a spiritual love love suppression. We have numerous studies that long term exposure to these drugs injures the brain, can cause atrophy in portions of the brain. And Carrie, we are now finding that kind of study in virtually every class of drug. The new antipsychotic drugs, a lot of study that's like, you know, Abilify and Zyprexa, Risperdal and so on and Vega, that 
that they cause shrinkage of the brain within months of exposure and we've always known they were toxic to the brain in animals we just do it anyway and do it anyway and do it anyway remember this is a profession that shocks people probably a few hundred thousand a year get shock treatment which obviously ruins the brain and they claim it doesn't hurt and this is a profession that was doing having a huge comeback of lobotomy in the 70s till I took several years out of my life to run a campaign to stop lobotomy from coming back. So the long-term tragedies of these drugs are going to be ignored, just like the tragedies of shock and lobotomy are still ignored. But people really need to be alert. There are simply no positive long-term studies for any psychiatric drug. I'll repeat it. There are no long-term positive studies for any psychiatric drug. And for every class of drug, there are long-term studies showing loss of quality of life, increased disability, and other signs of just really things going bad for you if you stay on these drugs for months and months and years. And so what are the alternatives out there? So for our listeners out there, some of them they themselves are on some of these medications or they have loved ones on medications or they've been told by their doctor that they should consider starting on some of these medications. Um, What should they do? First of all, the most important thing anyone can do is to refuse to take psychiatric drugs. It is your right. Now, Psychiatry in the pharmaceutical industry is so powerful that some folks actually get forced in mental hospitals and some even forced as outpatients to take drugs against their will. Usually the, the drugs that are guaranteed to ruin your nervous system, these antipsychotics. But for most of us, we can walk away. Just don't do it. Don't get started on Xanax and become literally an addict and end up literally with cognitive dysfunctions that may may last forever if you stay on these drugs for years. You'll get improvement if you come off, but they still may be lasting. Don't start on these antidepressants and become apathetic and have brain function problems and so on and so on. Just don't do it. Now, if you don't do it, you may start to think, or at least you'll be encouraged to think with an intact brain about what are the alternatives. Well, all of life ultimately is the alternative. Human suffering, emotional suffering, has been with us since the beginning of time. I believe it is actually built into our human nature. Uh, By the way, I have two books here I want to mention. One is for about how bad the drugs are, if you want a summary, and if you want uh, a program, an approach to coming off the drugs, My book, Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, is the book. It's called Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, a guide for prescribers, therapists, patients, and their families, because you need a cooperative effort to come off drugs. And my book about the inherent nature of our being, having internal conflicts from guilt, shame, and anxiety, and how to overcome them through reason, principles, and love, That book is called Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions. And we don't need to summarize at the end. I'll say that the website is bregan.com, B-R-E-G-G-I-N.com. So you really need to open your mind to all the ways that you can learn to understand and overcome 
the very painful things that distress us. One way is, of course, psychotherapy. I think the best therapies are family and couples, where the therapist helps the whole family, or at least the couple, deal with their issues. If it's your child, never send them to a therapist, not, not any, anybody who's preteen. Don't send them to a therapist. Bring yourself and your family to a good marriage and family counselor. Marriage and family counselor, that's what they're supposed to do. Tell them you don't want drugs. And work on why is the child having trouble if there is something that's really wrong? Why is the child so angry or hurt or distracted? Work together as a family. In my work, I usually see a pre-adolescent only once or twice because I can quickly size up in the first hour the dynamics in the family that are making it hard for the child, the conflicts over child rearing, dad's aloofness, mom's temper, whatever the things are, they come out pretty quick and then you work with the parents. That's my advice if you've got a child. It's so simple if you have a child. Just find somebody who can help you learn to better more easily, lovingly, and happily raise your children. It's usually a combination of developing your sense of moral authority, which most parents lack nowadays, your sense of moral authority plus lavish, unconditional love. It isn't very complicated. I talk about that in, in my book, um, um, The Ritlin Fact Book. So, with kids, it's not all that hard. If a kid is in distress, there's distress in, around the kid, in addition to the ordinary human conflicts, because we all develop some guilt, we all develop some shame and anxiety and anger and numbing and so on, but we can help our kids. And even if you don't want to think you've contributed anything to your child's problems, be sure you're the cure. You're the best cure. You, as the parent, are the most available, important, critical person. And if you change, your kids will change. And it doesn't mean you're bad. I mean, after all, one of your children or two or three of them may be doing wonderfully. So here's one kid who's got something of a problem. It may have to do with dynamics, out of your control, birth order, bullying at school, who knows. But you, as the parent, hold the key to your child's success to giving as much as you can to your child in a rational, disciplined, and loving way. Now, your own problems as an adult, if they're serious, undoubtedly go back to childhood. That's just the way it is. Look at your child and the problems your child has. They'll probably have some version of them when they're 40 or 60 or 80. It's the same for you. So go back and look at your childhood. Uh, Explore it with somebody who's, who's valuable to you as a therapist. But then as an adult, and also as children, there's tons of other things that can help. Medi meditation, all kinds of, uh, of practices for relaxation and enjoyment of life. Uh, a deepening conviction that there's a loving God can help a lot with guilt, shame, anxiety, anger, and numbing. Nature nature, immersion in nature, f deciding to be brave and find more creative work, deciding to be brave and to find love, or maybe if you're in a marriage and you once loved your wife or your husband, deciding you can revive that love, maybe getting help to do it. 
life is about, to me, living principally, living by, with principles that are good, living by sound ethics, kind of the same thing, and knowing you're a source of love. Carrie, we are sources of love. When we get that straight, everything gets better. Dr. Bregan, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your book, Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety? And maybe can you give us an example, like from your private practice, of um, a case that you worked with that you apply these principles on and the kind of the before and the after? Uh, only in the most general way. I, yes, I, I don't tell stories about my patients. I mean, I actually have avoided even doing doing disguised cases. It's just very awkward. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and people don't like it. But I can tell you, I can give you general examples. Okay, okay. I mean, I work with people, Carrie, because I'm a kind of a psychiatrist of last resort. Uh, I work with people who have been brain damaged by shock treatment and by drugs. And if they can grasp that they aren't their brain. This is an extreme example because most of us, I mean, we don't have to go this far. If you can grasp you're not your brain, that you have a God-given spirit, that you're a being, that you that you have essential human worth, you can begin to take charge of your life and to see yourself as a source of love, you can be responsible and loving and learn to do that better than you were doing before the terrible way of life that landed you on a shock table or heavily drugged for years. So I have patients whose lives are better now even though they have demonstrable injury to their brain. They're better now. And that is so important for, for if you've been in an auto accident or you've been drugged for years or you've been an addict, that even in that circumstances, if you can learn to finally take responsibility for your life, and that can happen in a flash or it can take months or some people have trouble ever getting there. But if you can get that, I'm in charge. I have a, I'm a spirit. And even if... My brain is more sluggish than I want. It's just like a sluggish car. I'm the driver. I'm going to make it do what I need. You can become the loving person you want to become. And you can do it with the help of religion, with the help of uh, meditation, with the help of therapy, with the help of my book, Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety. Um, I just want to encourage people to know that. Now, in my practice, what I especially love and this is so common in America, is to help people who have loving lives when they were dating. And then they then they just fell apart over the years. And this is the common trajectory. Uh, fighting about the kids, stress of the kids, lack of romance surrounding the kids, work stress, the, the, the economy making worse stress even more. Um, what I love is to is to see people, maybe they've seen five therapists in the past, because often that's what happens with people who come to see me, and, and I only take a very few patients, and I'm not asking anybody to be a patient. I only take very local patients where I, where I know where they, they live, and you know we can really work closely together and so on. But I like to, to ask these people, did you ever love each other? And of course, most people who come to therapy are going to say yes, or they wouldn't both be there. 
There are exceptions, but they're very rare. And then I tell them, well, then there's no reason why you can't love again. Let's look at what's keeping you from having a marvelous loving relationship. Now, they may look at each other in astonishment and say, well, we've seen three family therapists. None of them started out talking about love and an ideal relationship that's joyful, happy, and romantic. They talk to us about honest communication or this or that. I said, no, no, no. It's all about loving communication. It's all about being kind, loving, and caring. Well, how about standing up for myself? Oh, I explain. You'll be able to so much more easily know when to stand up for yourself when you're not adding to the problem, when you're being kind, loving, and sweet. You'll be just in such a better position, man or woman, to say, well, what's coming at me I don't deserve? Please stop. You must stop. So this is the kind of context I work in. And I may go back with the couple and look at their childhood. Because if a man is very cold and aloof or a woman is flying off the handle, to use kind of a caricature of what we often see, if uh, they're handling their age differently, the man withdrawing and, and the woman uh, being very, very angry openly, well, then we may have a childhood issues which are being stimulated by real problems. I mean, there's still a real problem. The man has to deal with his wife's open anger. The wife has to deal with his concealed anger. Um, it's a real problem. But also it's being driven by issues that made the man withdraw in childhood and made the woman feel she had to just be angry and defend herself in childhood. So this is kind of some of the things I work on. And, and in the book, uh, the book is divided into three parts. The first is a whole new theory about guilt, shame, and anxiety coming from evolution. That we evolved to have guilt, shame, and anxiety because otherwise we would have torn each other apart in our family lives. I mean, we still do it. But we would have done it even worse if we didn't have guilt, shame, and anxiety when we were primitive people. We were so violent, we humans, and we're so loving, we just would have massacred each other in intense relationships. So I think that, that natural selection favored people who had emotions that stifled in personal life, not against others, strangers and so on, but in personal life stifled our self-expression in the form of willfulness and aggression. And it's got terrible consequences. It's a very imperfect mechanism. And people can learn to identify and understand that. Part one is about understanding it. Part two is all kinds of different approaches to identifying whether you're being driven by guilt, shame, and anxiety, whether you're being driven by its derivatives, which are, you know, anger and numbness, and also about the underlying helplessness. It's a whole way of just viewing and finally understanding what's going wrong. And then the th and identifying which general approach you're mistakenly on. And the third is about how you become the person you want to be in a loving relationship or loving nature or God, though I focus on relationship. I notice I'm mentioning God a lot, so I'm maybe on my mind today, but um, it's not, not the centerpiece of the book. The centerpiece of the book is love. Wow, talking a lot, Carrie. You're listening a lot. I'm a, I'm a good listener and you're a great talker. This has been an awesome interview because you've given, I think you've given our listeners a lot of hope that no matter where they're at, there is hope that things can be done, that they can feel better and, and, and have a better life for themselves and their families too. 
absolutely, absolutely don't put up with being drugged into submission, into a gradually deteriorating quality of life toward a feeling you can't control your emotions. Go for broke. Life is about going, doing, experiencing. And above all things, look for love. Find new ways to love your children, love your spouse, love your community, love nature, love your dog or cat, your friends, your work, your personal creativity, really. And, and if all that is, seems very remote right now, it may be because you're on a benzo, an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, a mood stabilizer, or a stimulant drug. They're just not going to let you get where you want to go. They'll make you settle. Okay, so again, Dr. Bregan's newest book is Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions. Now, Dr. Bregan, where can our listeners find that book and all of your other great books? And how can they find out more about you? You had mentioned your website earlier. Can you mention that again? My website is bregan.com, B-R-E-G-G-I-N.com. I've got about 50 or 60 of my, maybe more of my scientific art. Well, no, I think I have about 60 scientific articles, and most of them are up there, including uh, recent ones about guilt, shame, and anxiety, and recent ones about, and it's a scientific article in a scientific journal, why you should never give drugs to your children, period. Um, so there's a wide range of information on the website. There's also a book purchasing um, opportunity. Basically, I think, as good a way as any is go to Amazon.com. Just about everything I've written you can find in a book form you can find on Amazon.com. It's really a pretty good system. Okay, so for our listeners out there, I'll make sure to have all of those links available so that you can easily find Dr. Bregan's website and then all of his books. Dr. Bregan, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has just been an awesome interview. I think you tapped me with a magic wand, or as I said, I I just finished uh, a book that's wholly different than anything I've written, and I put the final title on it today, and when it comes out, please have me back. Okay. I will make a note of that, and I will. Okay. <laughs> that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Peter Bregan. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.